John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. I'm going to read this for us. I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his help as we hear from his word. Would you hear now the word of our Lord? The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You were not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. <sighs> Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together this morning. We thank you for your kindness, for your mercy, for your grace that has been bestowed upon us sinners that are unworthy on our own to ever approach you, but through Christ you have made us your sons and daughters, adopted into your family. So I praise you for that, and I ask God now that you would help us to see your word, to receive, to be challenged, to be convicted, to be encouraged, and Lord, to see Christ clearly. Father, I ask that you would bring the right amount for everyone that is here, whatever they may need this morning, that everyone in this gathering would leave here different than they came in. And Father, I ask simply what we know not you would teach us, and what we are not you would make us, and what we have not you would give us by your grace for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. So in America, there is definitely hostility growing towards Christians. Uh, we see this on the news, and we likely know this from our own experiences. Those that adhere to the basic Orthodox Christian teachings, the things that the Bible is just plainly clear about, uh, such as the sanctity of life. Uh, maybe even God's design for marriage, that it is between a man and a woman alone. God's design even for, for gender and, 
and what that means, the assignment of gender and the roles that different genders play within this world. I mean, these are just a few, and to be certain, we know that if we hold to these convictions as the Bible teaches, we are assaulted from all sides. You you hold to these things, and you'll be called narrow-minded. You'll be called a a bigot. Uh, You'll be called authoritarian, even. Uh, Some will even say, and the headlines have shown this, that Christians are the most dangerous people in our country. But we should not be surprised at this, should we? I mean, Jesus himself tells us this in John 15, 18 through 19. He writes, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it, it hated you. Now he's talking here to his disciples, his followers. He's saying the world is going to hate you. And you know why? Because it hated me. And then he goes on, he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, you were a a, a Christian, you were not of the world, I, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So church, I mean, we, we cannot, we, we should not be surprised by the growing hostility of the world towards those who seek to live godly lives. Uh, the 17th century Puritan John Flavel said, quote, whoever resolves to live holy must never expect to live quietly. If we resolve to live holy lives as the people that God has called us to be, we should not expect to live quietly and to have peaceful, carefree lives in this world. So what are we to do? How are we to respond to the unavoidable hostility that arises in our day and age? Well, here in our text, we see Jesus Christ demonstrate a commitment to three essential areas as he is amidst great hostility. And listen, brothers and sisters, we will be served well if we follow our Savior's example here. If we follow his example and adhere to these three commitments ourselves, we will be sure to be well served. These three commitments are this. One, a commitment to God's glory. Two, a commitment to God's truth. And third, a commitment to God's story. So a commitment to God's glory, God's truth, and God's story. Let's look here at the first. So look at verse 48 with me. And we, we see here the Jews have now doubled down on their attack of Jesus' character. Now, remember, this is the end portion. This is the last scene here uh, of this act. This is the, the, Jesus is responding to everything that has taken place since he has started to preach in the temple. Okay, this is still in the temple. This is the, still that same scene we started um, weeks ago now. 
So now we see the ending. We see the last part of this. How is Jesus responding to what is going on to this last section here? And so we say, or we see here that the Jews say in 48. So they answer Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, listen, this shouldn't be read as an inquisitive question. Uh, They're not really asking a question here. In fact, this verse could be rendered and probably should be rendered. We were certainly right when we called you a Samaritan and said you had a demon. If you recall, the Jews despised the Samaritans. They considered the Samaritans their enemies. They, They hated the Samaritans with all that they had. They thought of them as insignificant outcasts that had no claims to the promises of God. So what they're doing here is a personal attack against Jesus Christ. Essentially, the Jews are saying, you must be a demon-possessed Samaritan to be saying the things that you are saying. For, For you to talk to us like this, the Jews, the Pharisees, the ones that are God's people, you must be crazy. You, you've got to be a demon-possessed Samaritan, our, our enemy, to ever speak to us in this manner. Now, I want you to pay close attention here. I want us to notice how their lies here really follow the pattern of this overall story that has once again started Uh, many verses back. Uh, We remember that some refused to believe Jesus' teachings, right? They they refused his teachings. They they don't want it. Uh, They they pass up on the offer to drink from the river of living water. They they don't want that. They, nope, don't want it, Jesus. You can keep that for yourself. Uh, Some reject the invitation to follow the light. And what do they do? They continue to walk in darkness. They say, we will continue to walk in darkness. We want nothing to do with the light. Jesus tells us in verse 44 why this is. It is because they are of their father, the devil. And who is the devil? He's the father of lies. So what they are doing here is showing that in, in all their ignorance and their hostility They have believed this lie, and they have bought into this lie. And whose lie is it? It's the devil's lie. It's their father, the devil, that they continue to follow. See, they're drawing a line in the sand here. Their language emphasizes the contrast between themselves and Jesus. Here's what they say, right? They say, we are right, but you, you are a demented, crazy person. I mean, they're putting putting Jesus in a completely different category here. And church, isn't this the same posture of the unbelieving world that we see ourselves in? I mean, we're right, you guys are crazy. There's no way you could believe these things. You you must be a demented, crazy person to really believe these types of things. Like, come on, are you serious? We see this all over. I mean, Christians are attacked 
and accused of being crazy or demented for believing in orthodox Christian values. So we must pay close attention to what this text teaches. And we should not be surprised or shaken when we are attacked for genuine Christian beliefs. So how do we respond? How do we respond to this type of hostility here? Let's look at Jesus' response in verse 49. Jesus answers, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Now, look at how Jesus really mimics their emphasis of the contrast between them. He says here, first, I'm going to rebuke this claim. He says, I I don't have a demon. And so he rebukes the claim, rebukes the attack there. Then he says, I'm going to draw a line just as you have. Okay, you you think there's a line. You're, You're right there is. And here's where it actually is. He says, I honor my father. You, on the other hand, you dishonor me. And so here Jesus is saying that those who dishonor him are dishonoring God. Brothers and sisters, this is an important reminder that we have looked at before, but we can't miss this. There is no relationship with God apart from a relationship with Christ. Jesus is the only way to God. Point blank period. He plainly says, dishonoring God the Son is dishonoring God the Father. Remember, this group really prided itself on the idea that they were God's people. They thought of themselves better than others. They they thought that because of their pedigree, because of their lineage, because of uh, really how they presented themselves, they were indeed better than anyone. And here Jesus is letting them know that their disrespect towards him is in fact proof that they don't follow God like they claim to do. I mean, maybe you know somebody like this in your life that just claims to be a a, a follower of God. They love God so much, but they dishonor Christ in their words, their actions, and how they live. And Jesus isn't done yet. Look at verse 50. He continues to advance his argument further, telling this group that his mission is about God and God alone. He says, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So listen, here we see Christ's unwavering commitment to God's glory. Listen, Jesus is not after his own fame and recognition here. He's not just after his own self-promotion. He is all about God's glory. And furthermore, he isn't interested in gaining their approval. Jesus says, there is one who judges correctly. It's God. I'm worried about his judgment and his judgment alone. Your judgment does not matter. That's the judgment that concerns me. And then in the midst of this hostile crowd, while attacks are coming from all sides, Jesus reminds his audience of the reason he is there in the first place. 
And that is to seek and save the lost. Look at verse 51. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, this is a glorious promise, brothers and sisters. This is a truth that, I mean, we can, we can really root ourselves and remind ourselves in day after day after day. Now, we know that everybody will die a physical death. And here Jesus is talking about a spiritual death that happens after our physical death. And what is that? That's eternal separation from the goodness of God, from God's love, from his mercy. We, we then become vessels of, of eternal wrath that will be poured out on all those that will not believe. But those that do believe, the wrath that is due has already been poured out on Christ. There's eternal joy for them. The writer of Hebrews is helpful here. In Hebrews 9, 27, he writes, just as it is appointed for man to die once, talking about physical death here, and after that comes judgment. Okay, now what this judgment is, is the judgment that leads to spiritual death or spiritual life. Listen, if you, you've never been told this, but every single person will be judged. All of us. We will all be judged. And for those that are in Christ, the good news is that all of our sins have been paid for. And he has, he has endured our judgment. He has taken it upon himself. But for those that find themselves apart from Christ, your judgment will be eternal separation from the love, the mercy, the grace, the kindness, all the goodness of God will be gone, and you will only see his wrath. I have to I'll be remiss if I do not just remind us of this truth here. It's in this text. We must remember this. Listen to how scholar Herman Ritterboss explains how believers will never see death. For, for those that are in Christ, I want you to listen to this. Quote, those who believe in Jesus' words already have eternal life. Death is no longer facing them, but behind them. When they pass away, when, when they die, they will not be handed over to death. End quote there. I mean, what a tremendous promise to all who obey Jesus. And wonderful reminder of the intentional mission of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to give a few points of application here as we finish up this section. Number one, Christians, we must seek God's glory in everything that we do. Every single thing that we do, we must seek God's glory. Listen, it's really easy to, to slip into an area of, of wanting the glory of man, especially with our, our modern social media day and age. 
I'm almost 42. I'll be 42 next month. And, you know, I, I, I think of my kids and some of the teens that are here and some of the young adults. And, I mean, just the, the way that you're engulfed in the social media culture is just mind-boggling. It's scary because it is so easy to fall into the trap of living for the glory of man, wanting man's approval. And listen, let me tell you something. That will lead to death. It will lead you down a dark, dark road of despair. Because listen, there's only one approval you need. There's only one person whose glory you should seek, whose glory you should seek to to magnify in your life, and that is God himself. Everything else is futile. Second, Christians can expect hostility when we are seeking the glory of God. So don't think this is going to be easy. It's not easy when we're, we're living this type of life. So just as we saw here, just as we see in this text, listen, people are not going to like how we live when we live according to God's word. Those that hate God will hate us. Accept it. That's the way it's going to be. But listen, this leads to the final application here that I want to make here, is that when we are practicing the living and trying to, to live for the glory of God in all that we do, filtering everything that we do through the, is, is this glorify God? If so, I'm going to continue to do it. If not, I, I may need to leave it aside. But listen, When we are faced with hostility, we must not, we must not use the world's means of fighting back. See, the the world, they they resort to name-calling, character attacks. We can't do that, brothers and sisters. We, We must not be those types of people. We must do what Jesus does here and and stick to the script. I mean, this goes for spouses, goes for when you're talking to your children, children, the way you're talking to your parents, goes the way you talk about your coworkers and coworkers uh, to your boss, students. I mean, it, it, this is, doesn't matter who the person is. We all must make sure and ask God to help us. And prevent us from from falling into the same category as the world when we are facing hostility. So we've seen Christ's commitment to God's glory. And second, we see his commitment to God's truth. Look at verses 52 through 53 with me. The Jews said to him, so they're, they're responding, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? 
So once again, they're, they're responding to Jesus' words here, what he has just said in verse 51, that where he says, if anyone keeps my word, they won't see death. But listen, they don't get it. They don't understand what Jesus is saying here. The Jews don't understand that what Jesus means when he says they won't see death, that those who follow him, obey his words, will not see death. They only think physically because they do not have spiritual eyes to see the meaning of Jesus' words here. So what do they do? They accuse Jesus of gloating, of acting as if he is just greater than everyone else, greater than the prophets and Abraham who have died. Listen, we all know that Jesus is far greater than Abraham and the prophets. I mean, you could take all the spiritual juggernauts and all of Scripture and add all the pious humans that have ever walked the earth, and you could put them all together, put them on one side of the scale and Jesus on the other, and it will not even tip the scale of the glories of Christ. Jesus is supreme. But still, Jesus is not gloating here. Jesus is not uh, putting himself on a pedestal. He's not seeking his own glory. And he explains this. Look at verse 54. So Jesus answered. So he's now answering. This is just this debate, right? This is dialogue going back and forth. They're in this, this heated debate. Here's what Jesus says. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So what does Jesus say? He says, I'm not glorifying myself. He says, I don't seek my own glory. Rather, it is my Father, God the Father, the one that, that you call your God, yeah, yeah, he, he glorifies me. The one that you claim to know, yeah, he glorifies me. He doesn't change his message here. I mean, Jesus does not retreat. He, he's not changing his, his message and trying to accommodate them in any way, shape, or form here. I mean, he's not backing down because of the continued attacks. I mean, it's the same thing that Jesus has been saying over and over and over and over again. I'm God's. I am God. You don't know God. And you're proving it by the way that you live. And then he continues. Verse 55, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his what? His word. I keep his word. Church, here we see Jesus clearly communicating that he is committed to God's truth. I mean, he, he is God, so he's committed to the truth of God. Listen, it doesn't matter how much these Jews insult Jesus or how much they insist that he is wrong. Jesus is tethered to the truth here. He will not compromise. 
Jesus says, I will not be a liar like you. He says, I will stand on the truth of God. And again, what pattern does this follow? That they are whose? Their fathers, the devil, the father of lies. So what does this mean for us? Well, first, we must remember that oftentimes those who are hostile towards Christians will not relent. They won't back down. They're not going to just somehow decide that they don't want to attack us anymore because now all of a sudden they've seen the light. Now, we pray that that happens, but oftentimes that is not the case. Listen, hard hearts often grow harder. We, we see that all the time. That, that is what happens many times. And so as Christians, listen, we must stand on the truth of God and not succumb to pressure. We, we must stand on the word. We must stand on what God has revealed to us through his written word. And we must say, this is our final authority. I love you, but I'm going to have to disagree. And I'm going to have to continue to disagree as long as you disagree with the word. Another thing to note here is that what we do see and what does happen when Christians do compromise on God's truth, who are they aligning themselves with? The devil. They're, they're helping the devil to accomplish his work. They're, they're putting themselves in the category of the father of lies. And brothers and sisters, we must be careful. We must stand on God's truth. So a question to ask yourself, right? I mean, do you find yourselves committed to God's word? Do you find yourself committed to, to God's truth? Or maybe you're following the father of lies, the devil himself. Maybe you're following the liar, the murderer, Satan. And there's a lot of different ways that that can play out. It can play out in things that you believe. It can play out in ways that you act out. What are you holding yourself to? Brothers and sisters, we must be people committed to God's truth. As Jesus demonstrates here, there's no other option when dealing with hostility. Like, we, we don't have any other answer. We don't have anything to offer anyone but the, the word of life, philosophy, man's ideas, different type of plans to create a euphoria in this world are all empty. They're void of God's word. See, we show ourselves to be God's people by aligning ourselves with the pure, 
unadulterated truth that is found in God's inerrant, infallible, written word given to us. And we live by it, using it as our defense when opposition arises. Listen to the psalmist here in Psalm 119, 160. It says, the sum of your word is truth. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. That is good news, brothers and sisters, that we can count on the word of God to be everlasting and to always be truthful. Amen. Listen, brothers and sisters, if people are going to reject us, if they're going to be hostile towards us, let it be because we refuse to reject the truth of God's word. Let that be the reason why people hate us. Let that be the reason why there's opposition, because we fail to reject the truth that God has revealed to us. Lastly, we see Jesus demonstrate a commitment to God's story. Look at verse 56 with me. Your father Abraham, now Jesus is continuing to talk here. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So let's, let's stop there. So here Jesus appeals to their own source of argument by telling them that the one to which they claim allegiance to, Abraham, was gladly looking forward to the day that Christ would arrive. Now listen, this teaches us a very important truth. Have, have you ever wondered how Old Testament Christians were saved? I've, I've had people ask me that before. Like, how do, were people in the Old Testament, like, how were they saved since Jesus had not arrived yet, had not died, had, had not been resurrected from the grave. So how, how were they saved? Well, Jesus' words here teach us that in the same way that we, post-resurrection Christians, look back in faith to what Christ has done, his work on our behalf, the pre-resurrection Christians look forward by faith to Christ's work on their behalf, okay? And then altogether, we wait by faith to see Christ's return. Turn over with me real quick to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. It's towards the back of your Bible. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11. It's very helpful here as we look, really, this is that, this is called the hall of faith sometimes, and because it just walks through all these uh, just juggernauts of Scripture, of the of Old Testament that just loved God and, and served him and followed him. And so look here at verse 1. I'm going to, we're going to skip around a little bit. I want to really focus in on some of the, of what, talking about Abraham here. Verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. 
By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Then in verse 8, skip down to verse 8 in chapter 11 with me. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then he talk about his, his wife here. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And then go down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And then skip down to verse 39. So after even talking more and more about others, look here in verse 39. So he says, now all these, all of them, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Let me tell you what he's talking about there. They didn't receive, they didn't see Jesus Christ the Messiah. They believed in a promised Messiah, but they did not see that Messiah. And then in verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, this is talking about how we're all Old Testament and new. We are waiting for the return of Christ. So Christ will then return, the second coming of Christ, and we're waiting for that great day. So you can turn back to John, but just kind of recap, right? Old Testament look forward to Christ's work. New Testament looks back at Christ's work. It's, it's all about Christ, though. Just shake your head if you understand that. That's the point I want to make sure we don't miss. It's all about Christ. There's always been one plan of salvation, Jesus Christ, Christ and Christ alone. Listen, in God's redemptive story, there is no other way. It is Jesus. It is only Jesus. There has never been and there never will be another way to redeem to be saved, to be brought from dead to life. You must see Jesus. I've told uh, some of you this story, but um, all my life, so my last name is Cash, and all my life, uh, I've, when I've said my name, especially when I was younger, um, people would say, oh, are you related to Johnny Cash? And I would always say, no, I'm not, because actually I didn't think I was. But now I actually answer, yes, I am, because 
of about six months or so ago, my cousin was doing an Ancestry.com thing, and she found out that Johnny Cash is actually, his family's from Amherst, Virginia, and uh, he's a distant cousin. So now when people ask me that, I'm like, yep, I'm related to Johnny Cash. It's pretty cool, right? My kids love Johnny Cash. You know, we love listening to Cousin Johnny, as we like to call him now. But... As cool and as great as that story is, and as, like, just, it's, it's wonderful to be able to, to say that and to have that in my, in my background. That's awesome. But you know what is just infinitely greater than that? That I'm included in God's redemptive story. That I have been adopted into the family of God. That I can sing, Father Abraham had many sons. You guys remember that one? Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, so are you. So let's just, some, yeah, some of y'all are singing. Some of you look looking at me like I'm crazy. Like, please stop singing. But the point is, is that we as God's people, we have been adopted into the family of God through Christ's work. We are now included into the promise that God made Abraham and said, I'm going to, all the stars, you're going to try to number them, and guess what? I'm going to give you more children than the stars in the sky, far beyond more that you can see. And, and these people will be a blessing to others. I will bless them. I will provide for them. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, this is your promise. You are included in this as well. I mean, listen, God's redemptive story is amazing. I mean, who would think that a perfect God would create human beings in his own image? And then they would rebel against him and choose their own way over their creator, breaking their relationship with him because of their sin, but God, in his kindness, in his love, in his mercy, not because he owed anyone anything, but he sends his only son to restore the relationship that is destroyed, that he would live a perfect life, then die a sinner's death, and then be raised to new life and is now ascended in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, now mediating on our behalf. God owed us nothing. But it was his plan. It was his story. It is his work that makes this possible. That's why we praise him. Listen, church, we are God's people. And this is the story we must commit ourselves to. And one we should seek to tell over and over and over and over again. Listen, let me just talk to all the teens and the kids in the room for just a moment. Being born into a family of faith is one of the greatest gifts that God will ever give to you, apart from Jesus Christ, that, that you would be born into a family 
that proclaims the gospel, that obeys the gospel, that says for us and our house, we, we will, we will serve the Lord. That they would present the gospel to you. I know you probably sometimes you think like, man, I wish I lived in a house with a lot less rules. That it wasn't so strict. And I wish I could just have this freedom and do all these things that I want to do. Listen to me. Trust me. God's protection for you, God's care for you is evident in the home that you're in. And Lord willing, the home that you're in will continue to proclaim the truths of Scripture to you over and over and over and over again. And by God's grace, you will repent and believe. And you will be regenerated, converted, and you will follow Jesus yourself. And then your family will be the same. I know your parents aren't perfect, but Lord willing, they will continue to point you to the one that is. But as we look at verse 57, we see here that not everyone is excited about this story. Not everyone is thrilled and wants to receive the message that we bring. So the Jews said to him in verse 57, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now here again, they are only thinking physically. They bring up Jesus' age saying, you're not even 50 years old yet, Jesus. So how in the world have you seen Abraham since Abraham has been dead for two millennia? Like there's, there's no way you could have seen him. And Jesus responds. In verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Listen, this is a clear reference to the eternal preexistence of Christ. Jesus Christ has always been a part of the triune God. He's always been with God the Father. They lived in perfect harmony with the Spirit before any of this took place. See, by saying, I am... Jesus is connecting himself with the expression found in Exodus 3 when God is talking to Moses. Remember, he's telling him, go rescue my people. And, and here's what you need to do. Because he asked, right, Moses is like, well, man, who, who do I tell them sent me? You, you sent me on this mission, but I don't think I'm qualified to go. So who should I, who should I tell them I'm here for? What does God say to Moses? He says, I am who I am. You tell them, that's who sent you. I am. I am has sent me to you. See, God, te- God sent Moses to rescue his people from their captivity in Egypt. And Moses goes as his representative. And this is why he was able to say, I am sent me. And here, Jesus has already shown over and over that he is there to rescue his people like Moses. But he is not just a representative of God. He himself is God. He is God. I am. 
says, before the great Abraham existed, I was there. I am eternal. I am God in flesh. And listen, they understand Jesus to say this. We know this by the last verse in this scene. In verse 59, it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So listen, they understand Jesus is claiming to be God. So they accuse Jesus of blasphemy here. We know this because the penalty for blasphemy was uh, the death penalty, stoning in this time. But stoning or the death penalty was only permissible when there was a, 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 a case, right? There was a judicial hearing, and then that person was rightly found to be guilty. And so what this teaches us is that hostility often grows into mob violence in crowds. See, when verbal attacks won't work, angry God-haters may turn to violence. This is the cruel reality of the world we live in. But listen, let me close with reminding you that we have no reason to fear. While that is the reality, Christians, we have no reason to fear. Listen, here we see Jesus escape death again. As we read that he hid himself and went out of the temple. Again, this is because Jesus' time had not come. He had a time that he was appointed to die, and this was not it. Now listen, we know we can't hide ourselves supernaturally. Uh, We can't become invisible. But we do have confidence in this life. We can trust that God is protecting us. And nothing will happen to us unless it is according to God's divine will. God is watching over you. He is protecting his children. And if this world presents trouble, we have a comfort that is far beyond this world. John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Listen, remember that. We will have tribulation. But here's the promise, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So brothers and sisters, let us be a people that find ourselves deeply committed to God's glory, God's truth, and God's story. As we continue to press on together as God's family in the face of a hostile world. And may we cling to Christ, the promise of Christ, trust in him that he will provide the peace eternally that we need. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for your kindness, for your mercy. I thank you, Lord, for all that you are, for all that you have done. We thank you that Jesus even shows us more and more as we look to your word of who we can be as we obey you. Lord, help us when we fail to trust Christ's work on our behalf. Lord, would you give us courage and strengthen our vigor as we attempt 
to follow our Savior's example. It's in his name I pray, amen.